0: Welcome to episode 2 of History Zine, the second part of our look at the War of the Spanish Succession. And we'll have a look at the great general Prince Eugene, and we'll also try and untangle the knot that is the multitude of claimants to the Spanish throne. But first, let's take a look at another podcast series. Today we feature the wonderful, the amazing, the very, very long Napoleon series hosted by Cameron Riley and featuring the acclaimed historian David J. Markham. Now this podcast was started a couple of years ago and has now reached episode 31 here in November 2007. Each episode is well over an hour long and just absolutely packed full of high quality content there's an immense amount of information about the life and times of Napoleon, Emperor of the French. The enthusiasm and delight of these two people as they wend their way chronologically through Napoleon's life is quite infectious. Each episode pushes us a little further on in the story, and both participants regularly produce letters and quotations that offer a variety of perspectives on the events and continually throw light upon the character of the man. There's a real sense of life and vibrancy to these podcasts. Riley and Markham both have their heroes and villains in the drama and cheer or jeer as they career madly through the proceedings. It's an invigorating ride which can't fail to engage the listener time after time after time. There's actually a real sense of sadness among many of the listeners, as they see a time when this story must come to an end. Napoleon must eventually die. And this series must reach a final episode. They have, however, promised another series, this time featuring one of Napoleon's heroes, Julius Caesar. I'm very much looking forward to hearing that one. I really can't recommend this podcast highly enough. It's just really great entertainment. The really strong pro-Napoleon bias may occasionally irritate this Englishman. But the story and storytelling is vibrant, exciting and entrancing. Nip over to the podcast network now and search for Napoleon 101. Or if you're on iTunes, just search for TPN Napoleon. Or, yet again, Napoleon 101. If you haven't heard it yet, then I envy you. You're in for a real treat. Now, not really a review, but I just want to give a quick mention to a podcast I've just discovered... called Binge Thinking History by Tony Cox. Remember last time? I did a quick excursion into the English situation in the late 17th century... and the reasons behind William of Orange being invited to invade England. Well, in the latest episode of Binge Thinking History he does a slightly longer and rather more accurate recap of this period than my sort of hand-wavy explanation of the English being a little bit unhappy. So that's episode three of the Binge Thinking History podcast, which covers the English Civil War, Charles I, Charles II and James II. A useful bit of background to our history zine episode one. Also, I've been spending a bit of time on Dan Carlin's forums. Bit of history chat on there. Worth popping in to take a look anyway. And now a little bit of historical linguistic trivia. This is a phrase that doesn't seem that common now. I remember hearing it a lot as I was growing up. It's a phrase, Hobson's choice. And Hobson's choice actually means no choice at all. It means you get what you're given. And I never knew the origin of this until I came to Cambridge here. And apparently he was a local boy born back in 1544. It's a man called Thomas Hobson. Now, Thomas Hobson was the principal carrier between Cambridge and London and kept a riding stable where undergraduates could hire a hack and also equipment down to riding boots. His boast was that all horses were good and must be kept fit by taking turns of work in proper rotation. The next for hire would be found by the stable door and no fellow commoner, no matter how wealthy or noble, ...could take another. That was Hobson's choice. And now... ...onto our main item. The War of the Spanish Succession... ...Part 2. Right, last time... ...we ended up in 1697. It was the Treaty of Riswick, ...and that ended the War of the Grand Alliance. The combatants in this war... ...were left weary, blooded and exhausted. But... The small matter of the Spanish succession still hung over the whole of Europe, like a storm cloud laden with brooding menace and dark forebodings. The Emperor Leopold was determined to press his claims to the Spanish throne. William was determined to maintain the balance of power, so that no single monarch held overwhelming power. By the way, note that sort of balance of power policy. This is an absolute staple of English policy towards Europe. It was in the time of Queen Elizabeth and it was again in the 20th century at the time of the Two World Wars. Anyway, back to the list. (laughs) So, William determined to maintain the balance of power and Louis determined to hold on to French gains and extend them into the Rhinelands. Louis, of course, would have been very happy to get his hands on Spain and therefore secure his southern border. There was also some very rich Spanish lands in what is now called Italy. Plus, of course... All the Spanish territory in South America. So, the Spanish Empire is ailing and weak... ...but it contains some very rich prizes in there. And of course everybody wants a piece of it. You'll tend to see this over and over again... as ...as a mighty empire collapses. The other power blocks are sort of pushing... ...and jostling each other out of the way... ...to grab a piece of the pie. We have a very similar situation occurs... ...at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century... ...just prior to the First World War... We have the Ottoman Empire collapsing at that time, and everybody rushing in to grab their piece of the Ottoman Empire. Many people believe that the instability that this caused in the balance of power was one of the prime factors in pushing us over the edge into the First World War. So where were we? Yes, the Treaty of Ryswick. Most of the combatants managed to get something out of it. The Emperor, he got Hungary and Transylvania. Louis got some territories in the Caribbean. Uh, Some colonies were exchanged in North America. And England persuaded Louis to recognise William as the rightful king to the English throne. This concession by Louis very much upset James. James Stuart, that's James II, formerly James II of England, was sheltering in France at the time and hoping that Louis would put him back upon the throne of England. The agreement at the Treaty of Ryswick seemed to dash his hopes rather. So... We have a peace now, quite delicate, but maybe, maybe it could have persevered a little. I mean, I know nothing had really been settled in this war, but perhaps, you know, everybody got a little something. Okay, we still have the Spanish succession looming, but there's, there's quite a decent balance of power now. So we have a situation where nobody's particularly keen to go to war. However, England has... Always, well, I say always. uh, Since the Civil War, certainly, England has been very much at the mercy of the political factions. It became something of a running theme that the Tory party were the peace party. They were looking for wealth, prosperity and peace, you know, which is a good thing. But sometimes you have to fight to get those things. And the Whig party, the Whig party is the, the newer party. They're... They see themselves more as realists, they see themselves as, as the new kids on the block, vital, thrusting, full of energy, and knowing absolutely just what is best for the country. So, yes, we have the Tories as the peace party and the weak party as the war party. And who has just come to power now? Yes, it's the Tories. And they absolutely insist that William disarm. In fact... England emerged from the war with 87,000 troops. This was stripped right back to only 7,000. The navy weren't stripped back quite as far. The Tories have always quite liked the navy. Mainly because it protects the merchant vessels, and therefore protects trade, and therefore protects profits. Still, it was stripped back a long way. It costs an awful lot of money to keep a standing navy. So we have a situation now where England has stripped away most of her forces. So she's no longer something you have to really worry about when you're making your vital decisions. And I reckon quite shortly, Louis is going to have one of those vital decisions to make. And he's going to look across the channel and think, they're not really a factor. I don't have to consider them. But before we get to that decision... Let's have another look at the Spanish succession. Now, I know we looked at it last time, but it is it is quite complicated. There are several claimants to the Spanish throne. Uh, we're going to end up with three in particular, but I'll, I'll run through it. The main problem with the Spanish succession is there isn't a direct succession. The Spanish king was very, very ill. This is Charles. He's very, very ill indeed. He's not going to produce an heir. In fact, it did actually stay alive for much longer than anybody expected, but it was never going to produce an heir. So, the main contenders for the throne are from some of Spain's very powerful neighbours. They're from Austria, they're from France, representing the Habsburg and the Bourbon dynasties. Their most direct claim was through Charles' half-sister, Maria Theresa. She had married Louis XIV of France, and they had a son, also called Louis, who was the Dauphin. This Louis... Apparently had the most direct and legitimate claim, and everybody recognized that at the time. Louis the Fourteenth also had something of a double whammy in this legitimate claimant game in that his mother was also a sister of the previous Spanish king that was Philip the Fourth. Confused yet you will be the other main claimant was Leopold, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now Leopold was the son of another of Philip's sisters. Remember Philip is the previous. Spanish king. So Leopold the son of another of Philip's sisters and the succession has been promised to the Austrian Habsburg line. In the will of Philip IV, so Philip IV the previous Spanish king had said that the succession, the Spanish succession would go to the Habsburgs which would be through Leopold or one of his relatives. The Austrian Habsburgs and the Spanish Habsburg had been united some time back back in the 16th century back when Spain was very powerful indeed. So this, in a sort of different way, is just as strong a claim as that of the Dauphin. Now, the maritime powers, that's England and the Dutch Republic, they weren't particularly keen on either of these two options. Both of these options place a great deal of power in the hands of one ruler, and that power could seriously curtail their trading activities the Dutch Republic and England are both looking for that balance of power again. Because as long as there is a balance of power in Europe, then nobody is going to be able to cut off their trade. But despite this, despite the fact that both of them are bad options for the Dutch Republic and England, William had agreed to support Leopold in his claim for the undivided lands of Spain back in 1689, probably considering the lesser of two evils at the time. But in 1692, a more appealing candidate to the maritime powers was born. This was Leopold I's grandson, the electoral prince of Bavaria, Joseph Ferdinand. Although he was Leopold's grandson, he was descended from him through the female line, so therefore not, strictly speaking, a Habsburg. His mother was Maria Antonia, who was the daughter of Leopold and Margaret Theresa. Margaret Theresa was a daughter of Philip IV of Spain. His father, ...was from the Wittelsbach dynasty... ...so he had the triple benefit of being neither a Bourbon or Habsburg... ...and also having a very good claim to the Spanish throne. This was definitely the maritime power's preferred option... ...and in 1697, at the end of the War of the Grand Alliance... ...England and France agreed upon the Spanish throne... ...going to Joseph Ferdinand... ...and the Spanish territories in Italy and the Low Countries... ...being divided between France and Austria. Charles II of Spain, however, was adamant that the Spanish Empire would not be divided, although he did agree to the succession passing to Joseph Ferdinand. So we could have possibly had an agreement here, but Joseph, rather unobligingly, died of smallpox in 1699, and the whole issue was opened up once more. France and England now decided upon a second partition treaty. There was another candidate still, This was a relative of Leopold I again. This was the Archduke Charles, a younger son from his second marriage. France and England agreed to his succession with the Italian territories going to France, a rich prize indeed, those Italian territories, and the Archduke receiving the rest. Now Spain and Austria were not consulted, and of course when they heard about it, neither were happy. Charles was still keen to pass on the Spanish Empire intact, and decided to bequeath it all to the Dauphin's second son, with clauses that devolved it on to someone else should circumstances change so that he inherited the French throne. This would be unacceptable to all parties except France and Spain, and would inevitably lead to war. So there you have it, a simplified version of the problems of the Spanish succession, but it should give you some idea of the competing factions and their various claims. Charles II of Spain died on the 1st of November, 1700, and on the 24th of November, the Dauphin's second son, the Duc d'Anjou, was proclaimed Supreme Monarch of the Spanish Empire in its entirety. Now, I've said this move would inevitably lead to war, but things stayed surprisingly quiet for a short while. William the English King and Dutch Stadtholder would have dearly loved to go to war against Louis at this point, but the English Parliament and Dutch policymakers were extremely Reluctant to do so. Both countries were still suffering the ravages of the previous war and desperately wanted a respite from the continual warring. Both countries, however, depended heavily upon trade and Louis, in his wisdom, cut off Spanish trade to both countries. This swayed public opinion very heavily against France and against the Bourbons. William seized upon this and brokered a deal between Austria, England and the United Provinces recognising Anjou as the Spanish King but insisting that Austria get the Spanish Netherlands and the Italian cities that were part of the Spanish Empire. This doesn't actually begin the war yet but it does define the position quite clearly so that he can count upon the participation of the Austrian Empire once hostilities begin. Another event now occurred, which may seem to us quite a minor matter, but which greatly inflamed the English populace at the time. James II, former King of England, died in France, and on his deathbed, Louis promised to recognise James's son, James Francis Edward Stuart, as the rightful King of England. Notice I talk about England here, rather than the United Kingdom or Britain. The act of union between England and Scotland had not yet occurred, although it was just around the corner. Anyway, Louis's action here incited much anger in England and made it much easier for William to obtain war money from Parliament. So, Austria made the first move in this war and moved to secure one of the Italian possessions it felt was its right. Prince Eugène of Savoy, a brilliant general who had already established his reputation in momentous victories against the Turks, invaded the Duchy of Milan. The French led by the Duc de Villeroy, moved to protect their Milanese possessions. And so, this titanic European struggle begins. So, horrible person that I am, I'm going to pause it there, or pause the train of events there. We're, we're doing the War of the Spanish Succession, and we still haven't got to an actual battle yet, I'm afraid. However, we've set the scene, we've talked about why the war started, we talked about the Spanish Succession, And we've run a couple of armies head-to-head over there in Italy. But before I leave you this time, I just want to talk a little bit about the Prince Eugène. Now, Prince Eugène was the fifth son of Prince Eugène Maurice of Savoy Carignano. And it was intended that he should pursue a career in the church, but he always expressed a preference for the army. Now, his mother was a very colourful character indeed. She was known as Olympia, and was at one time the mistress of Louis the Fourteenth. Now, when Eugene was about 17, his mother was involved in a great scandal involving poisoning, and it just so happened that her husband had died rather suddenly, under rather mysterious circumstances, quite recently. So she's accused of trading in poisons... And she's also accused of poisoning her husband. So, of course, she flees. She flees France, stopping only to pack all her riches in a few trunks. Eugène apparently hated Louis XIV for this, but the comment at the time was that Olympia probably deserved everything she got, and much more. Now, Eugène always wanted an army commission. Louis wouldn't give one to him. So, Eugène went to Austria. Now, Austria always needed commanders, always needed soldiers, because they were repeatedly fighting the Turks. The Holy Roman Empire had a particular duty to hold back these diabolical non-Christians rampaging all over the place. Now, our Prince Eugene did wonderfully. Winning battles where others had failed against the Turks, then, during the War of the Grand Alliance, he fought against the French. And then... In 1697, he was given command of the army in Hungary and won one of the most significant battles of the age. This was the Battle of Zenta. Things could have been so much different, though. Eugene was definitely not the first choice to command the imperial armies. At only 33 years of age, the emperor considered Eugene far too young. However, the president of the Imperial War Council, Graf Ernst Rüdiger Stahenberg, was full of praise for him. There's a report by Graf Steinberg to the Emperor of 15th of March 1697, which includes this sentence. I do not know of anyone who has more understanding, experience, industry and zeal for the Emperor's service, who has a more generous and unselfish disposition, or who holds the love of the soldiers in a higher degree than the Prince." Leopold took this advice on board, but couldn't bring himself to go all the way with it. He made the Elector of Saxony the Supreme Commander, and gave Eugene a role as his sidekick. The Elector, however, got a better offer. He was called away from Hungary when the Crown of Poland was offered to him, and so the position of Supreme Commander of the Imperial Armies in Hungary fell at the feet of Prince Eugen. As so often with the Imperial Army, the soldiers were in a shocking state who were poorly equipped, poorly clothed, poorly trained and rarely paid. Eugène's constant demands for more money for his troops were to become a consistent irritation to Leopold over the coming years. But Eugène understood the importance of keeping the troops in good condition and the importance of morale. Eugène was successful due to his fine military brain and boldness in seizing the advantage, but the care he took of his soldiers was also an important factor. The Battle of Zentera itself was a fine example of him being able to exploit an enemy's weakness and also to demand more from his soldiers than other commanders could. He drove his army onwards during a forced march of 10 hours and even then was able to get them to attack straight away after this so as to catch the Turks before they could cross the River Thais into Transylvania. The attack was an overwhelming success and the Turks suffered massive casualties, while Eugen lost only a few hundred men. This battle is often held up as a major turning point and the beginning of the decline of the Ottoman Empire. The Turks were forced to make a peace with the Holy Alliance on unfavourable terms for the very first time. After this battle, Eugène was given a large amount of land in Hungary and the revenue from this enabled him to build a fine palace. This is the Palace Belvedere. It's on the island of Chapelle on the Danube, just below Budapest. So there, we'll leave Eugène. But come back to join him fighting the forces of France in northern Italy. Next time. Bye for now.